Amen. You may be seated. like for us to open tonight to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, and we'll start reading in verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you... Command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. Let's pray once again. Father, we come to you tonight in the name of your Son, the one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. And we pray for grace tonight, Lord, because of Jesus. We pray you'd bring us on. Meet with us in this time. Teach us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to speak to you tonight on the subject of feelings in the Christian life. The place of feelings in the Christian life. Uh, Some time back, Charles shared a quote with me from Conrad Merle that I thought was very helpful and it's stuck with me ever since. And this is what Conrad said. If you don't bring your thought life into captivity to what you know is true, you will live a wretched, miserable life. And I want to submit to you this evening that the exact same thing is true with regards to your feelings. If you don't bring your feelings into captivity to what you know is true, you will live a wretched, miserable, defeated life. Many Christians are wretched and miserable precisely because they make their feelings the barometer of their spiritual life. You you get up one morning and you have a felt sense of God's presence. There's a felt sense of God's love for you. You know He's your Father. You're His child. And there's joy as a result of that. And then you get up the next morning and there's nothing. The feelings aren't there. God feels distant and removed. There's no felt sense of His presence or His love. Just a feeling of emptiness. And so you go on with your day depressed as a result of that, wondering if you did something wrong or what's going on here. Now, what actually changed from one day to the next? 
Was God suddenly less near to you? Was God suddenly less your father? Did he love you less that day than the day before? No. You see, all of those things are objective facts outside of you that don't change. Because of who you are in Christ, those things are true regardless. The only thing that changed from one day to the next were your feelings. God's truth didn't change. Reality didn't change. Only feelings changed. And when feelings take the place of faith in the facts, then this kind of roller coaster ride from one day to the next is going to surely result every time. And we can see this illustrated here with Peter, I think, so well. I want us to notice a pattern here in this account of Peter walking on the water. Look at verse 28. In verse 28, Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And in response to that, Jesus says one word, come. So Peter has a word from the Lord here. He has before his eyes the Lord himself, the Lord of glory himself, and he has a command from the Lord telling him to come. Those are all facts. Those are objective truths outside of Peter that he can lay hold of. And then on the basis of those facts, Peter walks out in faith. Verse 29, Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. So we have facts followed by faith. And now the verse doesn't say anything explicitly about Peter's feelings, but I can imagine that this was a pretty exhilarating experience. I mean, if people can get all giddy about hitting a good golf shot or something, I can imagine that walking on the water was probably a pretty powerful emotional experience. So notice the sequence here. Peter started with the facts. Jesus is right there before my eyes. I can see him. He commands me to come to him. On the basis of the facts, Peter steps out of the boat in faith and begins to walk on the water. So you have facts followed by faith. And then as a result of faith in the facts, Peter experienced feelings. And so the pattern you see here is fact followed by faith followed by feeling. And I'm taking the time to emphasize this because what we have here in Peter is a wonderful picture of the victorious Christian life. This is a picture of a Christian whose life is divinely ordered and spirit-directed. My eyes are fixed on Christ. I'm walking by faith in obedience to his command, and the feelings of joy and triumph are the fruit of faith that is fixed on the facts. So the order is fact, faith, feeling. But then look what happens next here. Instead of Peter walking in the divinely ordered life of fact, faith, and feeling, the order is completely reversed in verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. There's feeling. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter takes his eyes off of Christ, and instead of Christ being supreme, Peter's feelings take over as a result of him focusing on the waves and the wind, his circumstances. Peter sees the wind and the waves, and he becomes frightened. And instead of placing his faith in Christ's person and in Christ's command, his faith is transferred over to his feelings of fear. And those feelings then become Peter's ultimate reality, and he begins to sink. So notice what happens here. Peter went from fact, faith, feeling, to feelings first, followed by faith in those feelings, and those feelings determining his facts, his reality. The order is completely reversed. Peter begins to go under. And it's amazing, isn't it? Instead of Jesus cutting Peter some slack, I mean, after all, the guy did just walk on water, at least briefly. Jesus rebukes him in verse 31. You of little faith, why did you doubt? 
Why did you allow your feelings to take over, Peter? Instead of maintaining faith in me, in my word, why did you start placing your, fee- your faith in your feelings? And that's exactly our trouble many times. Instead of taking our feelings captive to what we know is true, instead of taking our feelings captive to fact, we allow our feelings to reign over us. And as a result, we're miserable and defeated. Instead of living in this mode of fact, faith, feeling, we get the order completely reversed. And we live in this feelings first, followed by faith, followed by fact mode. God's truth takes a back seat to our feelings and emotions. And we allow our feelings to determine reality rather than allowing God's facts to determine reality. Now, let me, let me be clear here, make a clarification. And let me say that emotions and feelings themselves are not the problem. God himself created us as emotional beings. It's one of the things that sets us apart from the lower creation. Not only that, God himself is an emotional being. According to the Bible, God experiences pity, wrath, compassion, hatred, jealousy, grief, and joy. And we see that echoed in the life of Christ, who is the the perfect image of God, And Christ rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, was grieved at people's hardness of heart, and he wept bitterly at the tomb of Lazarus. And so if we are to imitate God's character, this is pretty amazing, if we are to imitate God's character, we must be emotional beings. You see that? There are things, beloved, that we ought to have strong feelings about. We ought to hate sin and falsehood. We ought to love righteousness and truth and so on. But if feelings themselves then aren't the problem, what is the problem? The problem is sin. Sin is the problem. The transgression of Adam and Eve unleashed a poison into the bloodstream of humanity, and that poison corrupts every part of mankind, including his emotions and feelings. I mean, think about it. Throughout the world tonight, people are laughing about things that should make them cry. And others are crying constantly, and they don't even know why they're crying. They're messed up on the inside, you see. Instead of being the master of his feelings and emotions, instead of ruling over them, man's feelings and desires become tyrants that rule over him. And that's the state that every lost person is in. Turn to Titus 3, see an example of this here. Titus 3, verse 3, Paul's talking about his pre-converted state, including himself in this statement. Titus 3, 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. See, these feelings, these desires. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Again, enslaved to these things. Ephesians chapter 2, something similar here that Paul says. Ephesians 2. Again, the state of of the lost man is one of being enslaved to his feelings. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, so these thoughts, feelings, desires, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You see, the lost man's motto is, if it feels good, do it. If I feel hungry, I eat, even if it means becoming so overweight that I can't walk from the couch to the fridge anymore. If I feel sexual desire, I act on it, even if it means destroying my marriage and devastating the lives of my children. If I feel angry and revengeful, I murder someone, even if it means I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison. And examples like that could be multiplied many times over. I mean, when you look at the world around you, is there anyone that can deny that man's existence is one of allowing his bodily appetites and feelings to reign over him like a tyrant? Mankind is in bondage to sin, and because he's in bondage to sin, he's a slave to his own desires and feelings. Now, prior to the fall, mankind lived naturally in the fact-faith-feeling mode of existence. God's truth determined reality. Ever since the fall, mankind lives naturally in the feeling-faith-fact mode of existence. Feelings are first. Feelings determine fact rather than the other way around. I mean, isn't that true? You just you grow up that way. I've got to be me. I've got to be myself. Translation, I've got to trust my feelings. That's what people are saying, and that's the way people are living. And it's, it's, it's natural in a fallen world. It's intuitive. It's just it's what you do. And when feelings determine fact, the result is bondage and misery. And that would remain the situation for every single person ever born were it not for two of the most wonderful words in the entire Bible. Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God, but God. So he had just got done talking about how we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So no longer living in these fleshly passions and lusts and feelings, but raised up with Christ in newness of life. Another description of this, 2 Corinthians 4. The same reality here, just a little bit different angle of what happens when someone is saved, what happens when someone becomes a Christian. 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
Now notice what happens here when someone becomes a Christian. God takes this person whose feelings and bodily appetites are reigning in their mortal body. He takes a person who is living in this backwards mode of feelings first, and he opens that person's eyes to see the greatest, most glorious fact in the entire universe, the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that fact, you see, becomes the center of this person's existence. And as a result of seeing that glorious fact, faith springs up and feelings follow as the fruit of faith. In other words, what God does when he saves people is he restores them to the fact, faith, feeling mode of living. They're now a new creation with eyes fixed on Christ, faith resting in him, and feelings that are under the control of the Spirit of God. And we could wish that we could just stop there and kind of close the meeting. Um, But the story doesn't end there, does it? And that's the problem. Even though the Christian is a new creation, he's a new creation still living in the midst of a fallen world. And as a result of that, every Christian has forces, powers that are arrayed against him and are bent on his destruction. Every Christian has the world, the flesh, and the devil to contend with. The battle doesn't end when you become a Christian. and Your battle with God ends, but the battle with sin and with the world and with the devil just begins when you become a Christian. And the world and the devil are bent on stirring up feelings and desires in our flesh that are contrary to the Spirit of God. These forces are bent on making us forget who we are in Christ. They're bent on making us live by faith in our feelings rather than by faith in the facts of who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. And the world plays right into this. I mean, we are saturated. We we don't even realize it most of the time. But we're just saturated in a culture that lives according to its feelings. I mean, think about the realm of advertising. You know, you're, you're watching this, this advertisement, and there's these people frolicking around in a field, and there's this classical music playing, and everybody's happy and joyful. And then it gets to the end of the commercial, and you figure out this was a commercial for Alka-Seltzer. It doesn't have anything to do with the commercial. You see, they don't tell you anything about the product. They don't give you any information about the product. They don't even tell you what the product is until the end of the commercial. Because the whole point, you see, is not to tell you about the product. It's to, to get you to have some kind of emotional response to the product. You want to go out and buy this Elka-Seltzer because you had this happy feeling when you watched the commercial. Same thing here with counseling. Think about the realm of counseling. I mean, how many, it's, it's, I mean, it's almost a joke anymore. Counselors asking you, how does that make you feel? Not what, no, not what happened, not what the facts of the situation are, but how does the facts make you feel? How did that thing make you feel, that situation make you feel? Think of this thing of eating disorders. I mean, you have these, these girls who are literally starving themselves to death because they feel fat, when in reality they look like skeletons, you see, living according to feelings. Think about this area of sexuality. I feel same-sex attraction, so therefore I must be homosexual, and that must be okay because that's the way I've always felt. Just, again, feelings first. Feelings determine fact. Feelings determine reality. So we're saturated in this worldly culture, even as Christians, all the time, saturated in this culture that's constantly trying to stir up feelings and desires. And when those feelings come, as they always do in a fallen world, then the devil will come in and say, look, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't be feeling like that. If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't have desires like that. 
And so basically the devil will come in and just and call us a hypocrite, and then we feel even worse and get even more discouraged. And so I say again, if you don't bring your feelings into captivity to what you know is true, you will, you will live a wretched and miserable Christian life. And so with the rest of our time, then, what I want us to think about is, how do we do this? How do we bring our feelings into captivity to what we know is true? And I want, I want us to leave here this evening with at least a basic understanding of, of how I can do this in my day-to-day walk with the Lord. What does it mean? What does it look like? But before we get to that specifically, I want to say two kind of introductory comments here. And I th- this might help some of you more than anything else. <clears throat> First of all, the fact that you experience feelings and desires that are contrary to the, sp- the, to the Spirit of God doesn't mean that you aren't a Christian. It's an evidence that you are a Christian. Let me say that again. The fact that you experience feelings and desires contrary to the Spirit of God doesn't mean that you aren't a Christian. It's an evidence that you are a Christian. Now, what do I mean? We'll turn to Galatians 5. Verse 16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. In other words, the Bible itself tells us that as Christians, we can expect, in our experience, we can expect a battle related to the flesh, the unredeemed mortal body, and the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day lives. We can expect that. There's a battle being waged between our flesh and the Spirit of God. And so when we have these, these desires, these feelings that are contrary to the Spirit, it's not proof that we're not a Christian. It's an evidence that we are a Christian, you see. This battle being waged. You see, a lost person doesn't struggle with their sin. They, they might replace one sin for another, but they don't struggle with their sin in the sense of having a desire for spiritual things and wanting to get rid of this sin for the glory of God. They don't struggle with that. Sin fits them. They live in it. They love it. They drink it down like water. There's no battle in the lost person. In the Christian, there's a struggle. There's a battle against sin. It's not an evidence that you're not a Christian. It's an evidence you are a Christian, that this battle is taking place. And the Spirit will con- continue to wage that battle in your life won't let you go your own way. So, uh, again, this, the fact that we experience feelings and desires contrary to the Spirit of God doesn't mean that we aren't Christians. It's an evidence that we are Christians. Same thing again in Romans chapter 6. Go ahead and turn there. Romans 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now notice what Paul says here. He doesn't say you shouldn't live in sin anymore. He says you can't live in sin anymore. How shall we, how can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, literally, was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin, it's the flesh, might be made powerless, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, if we just stop there, we might think that Paul is presenting a pretty rose-colored view of the Christian life. Our old man was crucified, body of sin has been made powerless, we're dead to sin, alive to God, and now we just kind of reckon those things true and we coast along. But what's the very next verse say? Verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You see, being dead to sin doesn't mean that sin can't bother us at all anymore. That's not what it means. But it does mean that we don't have to submit to it anymore. Sin no longer is our master. It was at one time. You were slaves of sin. No more. Sin is no longer master over you. We don't have to let sin reign anymore in our mortal bodies. Before you're a Christian, it reigns, and it's, it rules over you, and you don't have a choice about it. And as a Christian, it no longer has to reign like that. And Paul says, don't let it reign. It's been broken. It's not master over you anymore. Don't let it reign in your mortal body. But the point here, again, is that according to the Bible itself, true Christians can expect to experience daily battles with sinful thoughts, feelings, and desires. So don't let the devil come in and tell you that such things mean you aren't a Christian. It's not true. The exact opposite is true. It's only because you are a new creation that such battles are being waged by the flesh and the Holy Spirit in your life to begin with. It's an evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work. All right, second introductory comment. Realize that if you are going to take your feelings captive, there has to be activity involved on your part. Yes, the feelings and desires are going to come, but the question is, what are you going to do when they come? Paul says, don't let those things reign in your mortal body so that you obey their lusts. You're free from those feelings now. Don't submit to them anymore. Don't let them reign anymore. Too many Christians stop fighting as soon as these feelings come because they think they've already sinned just because they have the feelings at all. And it's not true. When the feelings come, that is when the battle begins. Paul doesn't say, don't let those feelings come in at all, because he can't say that. Many times these feelings spring up of their own accord, apart from us even consciously thinking about them or willing them. It's just, they're there. The question is, how are you going to respond when they come? Are you going to take those feelings captive to what you know is true, or are you going to allow them to reign in your mortal body? because they will most certainly reign unless you take them captive.
guaranteed. And it's when they reign that they bring forth sin. James puts it in James chapter 1, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So these feelings come in. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is brought to completion, it brings forth death. And that's the process, you see. When those feelings aren't taken captive, they conceive and give birth to sin. And sin brings forth death. All right, so with those two things in mind, uh, moving on here, what does this look like to take these things captive, to take these feelings captive? And there are several places in Scripture that we could go to uh, to kind of see this in action, but to me, one of the most helpful places is in the example of Christ himself when he was tempted by the devil uh, in Matthew 4. So let's turn there. Matthew chapter 4. Verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is a Spirit-directed temptation. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. All right, notice a few things here. First of all, The battle here, at least in the first temptation, was a battle against feelings. Verse 2, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Now, there's nothing wrong with with feeling hungry as such, but the problem is is that Jesus here is in the middle of a spirit-directed fast. So the devil comes in and tries to tempt him right at that point and tries to tempt him into satisfying that hunger in an unbelieving way. Verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. See, and we read that like this was just a pushover kind of thing, but, beloved, he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. He was hungry. He was tempted to turn those stones into bread. It was a real temptation. It was a real feeling of hunger. It was a real battle. When Jesus was here on earth when the Son of God became flesh, He put Himself into a position where He would have to live as a man walking by faith and reliance upon God the Father. And so the devil comes in and tries to get Him to step outside of that position of humility and tries to get Jesus to draw upon His divine power to turn those stones into bread. 
Secondly, notice that Jesus doesn't waste any time fighting back here. He doesn't reason with the devil. He doesn't let the idea fester and grow. He doesn't give any place to it whatsoever. He immediately engages the enemy. And you see the contrast here with Eve in the garden. The the devil tempted Eve in the garden and she starts to reason with him. Starts to think about what he's saying. Starts to turn it over in her mind. And the more that she did that, the more reasonable it seemed. The more persuasive the thoughts became. You see, Jesus doesn't do that. Immediately, he strikes back. He immediately engages the enemy. Third, instead of giving in to the temptation to live based on his feelings, Jesus replaces feeling with fact. He refuses to allow himself to live in the feelings, faith, fact mode. He fights back with truth, and he puts fact squarely in the front by quoting Scripture. And then fourthly, he doesn't just fight back with fact, but he fights back with a fact that is directly related to the specific temptation that he was facing. He's tempted to be, he's, he's hungry. He's tempted to, uh, to fulfill that feeling of hunger in an unbelieving way. And so the devil comes along and tempts him in that way. And notice what he says right back to him, verse 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus is determined to live as a man. You see there, man does not live on bread alone. Jesus is saying that about himself. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, he's saying, no, Satan, I'm not going to draw upon my divine privileges, my divine power. I'm going to live as a man, trusting God to provide for my needs in his way and in his time. And we see this same pattern here in the rest of the temptations that follow. Jesus wastes no time fighting back. He responds with truth in every case. He responds with fact. And the truth that he responds with is directly related to the specific temptation that he's facing at the time. And so in closing then, I want to commend this example of Christ to you as a divinely inspired pattern for what it looks like to take your feelings captive to what you know is true on a daily basis. And so how do you proceed from here? What does it look like to proceed from here on? And this is something that I would recommend um, for you and for myself. Uh, Next time that you have some time alone with the Lord, take a a few minutes to examine your spiritual armor. Look for chinks. Look for holes in your armor. And what I mean by that is, what are the areas where the devil always seems to attack you? And for most Christians, you know right offhand, there's a few areas where the devil always seems to attack you in. Because it seems like with with every Christian, there's always specific areas. And it's different for most people, but it's always those areas for that person. Two or three areas. Figure out what those areas are for you. Do you struggle with feelings related to doubt, fear, worry? Lust, pride, depression, defeat, anger, bitterness, jealousy? Are you repeatedly feeling like you're still condemned even as a Christian? Do you feel like God's ashamed of you or that he doesn't really love you? Do you feel like God is not really with you? He might be with other people, but he's not with you. Again, what are the specific areas that you find yourself constantly being attacked in with regards to your feelings? So figure that out. Once you have that figured out, the next step 
is to find specific verses or portions of hymns or good quotes or whatever that relate directly to those specific areas of weakness in your life. Again, that's what Jesus did, you see. Specific truths directed to these specific temptations that he was facing. So you have this feeling that God's not with me. Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You feel condemned before God. Well, Romans chapter 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? You feel like God doesn't love you. Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or you feel like God is ashamed of you. Romans 10, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Hebrews 2, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Hebrews 11, God is not ashamed of them to be called their God. So if you're struggling with something, and maybe this is the case, maybe you're struggling with something, and you don't know where to turn, you don't know where to go, well then ask somebody. Humble yourself and ask someone. And don't just say, you know, I'm really struggling. I mean, get specific about it. Because just saying I'm really struggling is not going to help you. Again, specific, specific. I really struggle with thoughts and feelings of depression and suicide. Can you give me some verses that would help me fight these things? Can you give me something? Give me some truth. Give me some, something to lay hold of. Humble yourself and ask for help from others. Will it be easy? No. Will it be humiliating? Probably. But it's worth it to get the help that you need. And then once you have verses or quotes or whatever, write them down on something that you can carry with you throughout the day. And when those feelings start creeping in, lay hold of the truth. Lay hold of the facts. Don't just be passive about it, but actively place your faith and trust in what God says is true. It's like the hymn writer says, I do believe, I will believe. I will take God's side against my feelings. Let God be true, though every feeling in my mortal body, says otherwise. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, you see, the best feelings. I dare not trust the best feelings in the world, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Not lean partly on Jesus and partly on my feelings. Wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. You see, the feelings aren't there, so what do I do? I rest on His unchanging grace. I rest in fact. That's the fact. Place your faith in the facts. Your feelings are not the standard of truth. And that's what God is, is, is working in His children to start to transform our minds, just like Charles has been talking about here in Romans 12, to transform our minds to see that, that His facts, His truth, is reality. Feelings and all of these things do not determine reality. That's what the world, the flesh, and the devil want us to think. No, it's God's Word that's the standard of truth. So get it before your eyes, believe it, walk by faith, not by feelings, no matter how persuasive, how strong the feelings might seem to be. It's Scripture. 
If your feelings contradict Scripture, it's your feelings that are wrong, not the other way around. And you've got to settle that, beloved. You've got to settle that. Take those things captive to what you know is true. So fact, faith, feeling. And I, I like that. It's, it's an old, old way of saying things, but I think it's, it's helpful. It's easy to remember. Fact, faith, feelings. Facts first, faith in the facts, feelings follow along. And to walk in that mode is life and joy and peace, and to reverse that mode is bondage. And for a good one-verse summary, kind of the main point here, think of Jesus there in the upper room there in John 14 with those disciples. John 14.1, He says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Translation, don't trust in your feelings. But what? Believe in God, believe also in Me. Don't let your feelings reign. Keep the eye of faith fixed on Me. Well, that's all I have.